0: Uh, thank you, Diana, and Alastair. thank you for this invitation. As a trustee of a few years, it's always a delight to be here, and it's always a delight to be able to contribute. I'm going to talk mainly about some of the nuts and bolts of change. Up until the end of the First War, higher education was essentially a private activity, and it's somewhat ironic to believe that a hundred years later we may be reinventing what we had in 1919. Um, In 1919, after the war, under a great deal of pressure, the famous University Grants Committee was founded. It was at that time, perhaps not surprisingly, but to some with short memory surprisingly, a Committee of the Treasury. And it stayed a Committee of the Treasury for a very long period of time until it gradually sort of migrated To become a part of the Department of Education in its various guises over the years. And nothing much changed. It went peacefully on. If I might correct just a figure from our previous speaker, by the 1960s, we were heading towards the early 1960s, 59, 100,000 students. The figure that he was searching for for the contemporary circumstance is somewhere near a two million. And it was a very odd mix, because at that time, around 1960, 25% of the students were in Oxbridge, 25% of the students were in the University of London, 25% of the students were in Scotland, and 25% of the students were in all the other institutions in the red brick universities in our large urban conurbations. And then came what I think was one of the most wonderful forward-looking, deep-thinking changes, and it was put from government through the creation of the Robbins Committee. And the Robbins Report of 62 was a seminal document because it basically said anybody who could benefit from education and is appropriately qualified should be able to access higher education. And they then took the traditional universities and reinforced them, They added in a whole bundle of new, what I would call, Greenfield universities. You all know them well, Sussex, East Anglia, Lancaster, universities where there had been no universities before. And they took a lot of what were the technological, the colleges of advanced technology, Aston, Bradford, and so on, and they turned them into universities with a strong vocational and um, technological base. And growth took place. And it was a a great significant achievement. And it created a model which was emulated across the world. Many, many countries, particularly those in the Commonwealth, recognized that this was what society needed and followed in the footsteps of Robbins in one way or another. And things on the whole went pretty nicely from the time of Robbins through until the change of government in 1979. And shortly after the change in government in 1979, we encountered in the university sector what we are facing again. And that was the very drastic changes that took place when the Thatcher government introduced in 1981 the first of the radical cuts in the funding and support of higher education. And many of those cuts were draconian. They were the sort of cuts that would make the average vice-chancellor at the moment quail. The University of Aston had, at a stroke, a cut of 43% of its budget. I was then in Sheffield, helping with planning and development. and We did comparatively well. We only had, as a red brick university, we only had a 12% cut. But it was accompanied with a great deal of dirigism. The University Grants Committee had evolved almost as a secretive institution which issued diktats from whom you had to get permission to teach things. If you wanted a new course in this or a new course in that and it was to attract funding, then it did mean that you needed forms of approval. The system survived. One of the wonderful things about the higher education system is it is a survivor. It survived through the terrible times of the 80s. And then the next big change that came about was in 1988 under the um, direction of Kenneth Baker who introduced the Education Reform Act. And the Education Reform Act did something that had never been done in this country (laughs) or in any of the Commonwealth countries to the best of my knowledge. It took the committee, the University Grants Committee, offshore. And created the concept of a buffer body, a body that stood between government and the universities. And two bodies were created the Universities Funding Council, which was to look after the universities, and the Polytechnics and Colleges Funding Council. And the Polytechnics and Colleges Funding Council was given a new responsibility the um, colleges of, the Polytechnics and the Colleges of further and higher education, which had been in local government control, they were taken away and they were again put under the protection of a buffer body. And quite a lot of growth took place and there was real encouragement for the universities and the colleges to expand. And there was dramatic expansion over the period from 1988 to the early 90s. And the sort of numbers that um, Diana Warwick referred to, the sort of levels of participation we have now, those foundations were laid in that period. I had the privilege of being asked to go and run the University Funding Council in 1991. And I had what was for me one of those interestingly dramatic discussions with the then Secretary of State, um, Kenneth Clark, and, and I was asked if I had any requirements. And I said I had only one requirement, and that one requirement was that I wished to make public the funding algorithm for universities. Because up until then, it was secret. If you were a vice chancellor, and I was a vice chancellor, you didn't know why you got money. You just got a letter saying, Dear sir, 120 million next year, thank you very much. And if you asked, Well, why am I getting 120 million? they said, I can't tell you that, it's secret. And I said, We must make this public. And I can remember the um, permanent secretary at the time. Looking quite aghast at this idea, and he said to me, But, Professor, if you make the funding formula public, universities will change their behavior in order to get more money. (laughs) And I said, Not surprisingly, that was the whole object of the exercise. Because what it said to me was, If I know the basis on which my funding is allocated, then I can, as a head of an institution, begin to act strategically and think through where are my strengths, where are my weaknesses, what should I be good at, where should I expand, what does my community need? And the whole of the university structure began to change. And the university leaders became, I think sometimes, unfortunately it's called managerialist, but they became very much masters of their destiny, as any leader director should be. We are accustomed to it in most of our ways of life, but it had not until then been much much in the mind of university vice-chancellors. Almost immediately, the Secretary of State then changed the rules of the game, and he introduced the Further and Higher Education Act of 1992, and in that, two very major changes took place. The most significant was that the polytechnics were turned into universities, and the two previous sectors of universities, polytechnics and colleges, were merged into a single sector. And at the same time, they were then broken up again, but on this, on this occasion they were broken up on a jurisdictional basis. And funding bodies were created in England, Scotland and Wales, and Northern Ireland um, stayed, had a funding body, but it was essentially the government department. It did not have a buffer body. And what happened then was, was a, date, a minor debate about what was the role of the funding body. Was it f- planning? Was it funding? Was it enabling? Most of the chief executives shared the view that it was enabling. I had my own view about why enabling was necessary and planning wasn't. From a lecture I once heard a very, by a very prominent, I'm an engineer, a very prominent engineer, who coined a phrase which I've never forgotten. Um, and he said that in his industry there was an attempt for government planning. And he said that in his experience, planning was the replacement of chance by error. (laughs) Um, But, as I said, we became strategic in the universities and we went along in various directions. But at that time, and why I have, if there's any mistake, I think, major mistake that was made, it was about the jurisdictional separation. I'm sure, having spent eight years in looking after the university in Scotland, the Scots would not agree. But there was increasing jurisdictional divergence. And it is very, very much a part of the landscape at the moment. Most people will not recognise um, and will not know that Welsh universities at the moment are funded at a level of funding which is about 15% lower than any of the other universities in the United Kingdom. And Wales is paying a terrible price of this, but I'm sure my colleague, um, Sir Dianne, will, will comment on that with his background. And then the next change was the Deering Report of 1994, and Deering introduced a second principle. We had Robin's principle, Adam, raised earlier, and the Deering principle was the beneficiary pays. I am educated in a higher education institution. I will get a better job. I will live a better life. I should pay for that. And that led irresistibly to the introduction of tuition fees and led irresistibly to where we are at the moment. At the moment, sadly, many of those who are leading institutions have not been around long enough to see difficult times because we've had ten years of growth and strength, and we have created in this country what I believe is one of the best higher education systems in the world. It is recognized as such across the world, but and I'm used to hear what my colleagues say, because we haven't rehearsed our contributions, I believe there is some dangerous jeopardy ahead of us. But let us leave it to my two colleagues to comment further on that.